Our Father, what a beautiful analogy you give us of your Son as an anchor in Scripture. We thank you for that picture, that he is our sure and steady anchor, that what he began, he will complete, that you, when you saved us, you gave us, you said your spirit, as he promised, as you promised by the prophets of old, the spirit as an earnest, that the one who promised us life eternally will fully express it someday when he comes for us. So help us never to forget that incredible grace that has saved us and rescued us and written our name with his own blood in the book of life. As we come this morning, we come with a sense of humility, knowing our need for the Spirit to teach us. And so we ask for his ministry to be real, that the word he inspired, he would illumine, that we would be not just people who hear a sermon and hear words, but that we would hear from you that we might apply the truth that is found here. So, Father, we thank you for all who are joining us today in the different places that they are. And may each one be encouraged only as you're able to do that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. I am hoping to use a number of different passages in these days to teach on this subject of spiritual gifts. You can see the topic is using your spiritual gift. And there are four central passages that deal with the subject, and we're using as kind of our launch pad, Romans chapter 12. Now, do you know that you are a gifted child? When God saved you and put you in a church family, in the body of Christ, made you a member of the universal church, he gifted you for a reason, for a purpose. He gave you an ability. He gave you a proclivity. He gave you a talent in which to serve God. And it's different from some natural talent that you were born with or some acquired skill that you learned along the way. It is a special God-given gift given to you on your spiritual birthday. It was a birthday gift of sorts. And so I want us to begin reading in verse 1. We're going to focus this morning just on verses 3 through 5 along with a number of uh, ancillary passages, but we're going to read all eight verses so you have a sense of where Paul is going. Romans chapter 12, beginning now in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. If service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. Now remember, when you think about the book of Romans, there are three big divisions to this great epistle. It's really the constitution 
of the Christian faith. And if there's one New Testament book that you want to study in which to embrace all of the major doctrines of the Christian faith, if you had to choose just one, it would certainly be, I think, Romans. Romans divides into three sections. In chapters 1 through 8, he deals with the subject of doctrine. We call it the doctrinal section. He deals with the doctrine of condemnation, the doctrine of justification, and the doctrine of sanctification. When you come to chapters 9 through 11, it's the national section. It's not a parenthesis in the book. It's a continuation of his argument. He has just concluded chapter 8, that we are secure, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. And someone might immediately ask, well, you said you loved Israel with an everlasting love, that you would love Israel as long as the sun is in the sky and the stars are hanging. Seems like you abandoned them. And so in 9 through 11, he continues his argument by dealing with Israel in her relationship to the church. And in chapter 9, he shows Israel's rejection. Chapter 10, Israel's election out of all the nations of the world to bring the Messiah and to bring the Messiah back, I might add. And then chapter 11, her future restoration. So you have the doctrinal section, 1 through 8, the national section, 9 through 11. Then you come to the applicational section, and he deals primarily with three aspects of application. And the first concerns the subject of spiritual gifts. If you wanted one word to summarize the first eight chapters, the doctrinal section, I'd say it'd probably be salvation. If you wanted one word in which to summarize the national section, I'd say it would be sovereignty. And if you wanted one word to summarize the applicational section, it would be service. I asked you last time this question, when God looks down on the people of Community Bible Church, what gives him pleasure? What causes God to be pleased and to smile? It's obviously not the building that we're in or the furniture or all the electronics that we enjoy. They all have their place. But what pleases the Lord is when we love Him with our whole heart and we love one another. And the way we love God and love one another is principally expressed in our service. And so in this section, God reveals how we serve, how we worship Him. We often think of worship just when we get together and we sing and we're here corporately. But it's much larger than that in Scripture. Worship is living for the Lord each and every day. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. God could demand service. But he left heaven, took on humanity, and he came to serve. Jesus said, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your diaconess, your deacon, your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your doulos, your slave. God describes us throughout the New Testament, born-again people, as his slaves. That's why Jesus could say, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you've done to me. And so as we serve others, God doesn't want us just to randomly serve. He wants us to serve out of the area in which he has gifted us. And so this morning, I want us to further think about how do I discover and then use my spiritual gift. Now, we noted last time that spiritual growth is critical to the discovery of your spiritual gift. And so from birth, physical birth, God gave you a certain a set of talents and skills that begin to show themselves as you grow physically. 
You don't know what they are when you hold the newborn, but as they grow and develop, you learn, oh, he's athletic, or she can really sing or do ballet or whatever it is. Well, likewise, the day God saved you and gave you a spiritual birthday, and I hope you have one. If you're listening to me, you don't really know that if this were your last day on earth, that you would go to heaven. You need to settle that. You need to call upon Jesus and believe that his death and resurrection was sufficient to save you. But when God saved you on your spiritual birthday, he gave you a birthday present. And every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. And knowing and discovering and using that gift is critical. Now, last week, the live feed went out. So let me just review for the benefit of those who lost the feed last week. We saw that there are three critical principles that are unfolded in this chapter for the discovery and the implementation of your spiritual gift. First, there must be earnest consecration. If you're ever going to discover your gift, there must be earnest consecration. Notice again how the chapter opens. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is one of three summary therefores in the book of Romans. The first one is found in Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Not the peace of God. That is a byproduct of having peace with God. It's possible for you today to have peace with God and that you're no longer God's enemy, no longer under his wrath, but not to be experiencing the peace of God. And sometimes one of the reasons is what we're going to explore today. Some Christians are not experiencing the peace of God because they're not rightly related to the body of believers. The second major, therefore, is found in Romans chapter 8 in verse 1. And it's not concerning the justification of our salvation, but the justification of the security of our assurance. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The third, therefore deals with this subject of dedication. And so Paul begins with a a plea. The Spirit of God, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, is pleading with us. He's not saying, look, now that you've learned all these great truths that I've taught you, I think it would be a terrific idea if you walked with Christ. He's not saying that what I'm about to tell you is a suggestion. It would be a nice thing. No, this is not a nice thing. This is a necessary thing. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God... Please note, he does not say by the mercy of God. If your English translation says that, it's a paraphrase. You want a more literal translation. By the mercy is plural because he's not dealing with a single mercy, but with the multiplied mercies that he has spent 11 chapters detailing and explaining. Therefore, in the basis of everything I've told you up until this point in the book, on the basis of all that you've learned about God and what he has said about you and what he has done for you, This is how I want you to live. So last week, we asked the question, what motivates you? Why do you come on Sunday morning? Why do you serve God's people? Is it, well, that's what you're supposed to do on Sunday? There's just a sense of obligation? Is it done out of bribery? Well, if I do this for God, he'll do this for me. Is it out of guilt? maybe fear, if those are any of your motivations, then I ask you to go back and read the first 11 chapters in last week to make a list 
of the multiplied mercies of God. Because the basis for our Christian living that Paul is explaining to us is not an obligation. It's not out of a sense of guilt or fear. It's out of the multiplied mercies of God. And so in view of God's multiplied mercies, he makes this appeal. And so within these introductory words, please note first that finding your spiritual gift involves a presentation. It involves a presentation. God does not coerce you. He doesn't bridle you like a horse, but he beseeches you. He appeals to you in his kindness. God doesn't draft you into his spiritual army. There are no draftees in the body of Christ, only volunteers. God wants us to come as a volunteer. You say, but he could command us. Well, he can and he does, but understand in commanding us, he doesn't force us. God doesn't want forced love any more than you want forced love from your spouse. You want it to come from the heart. It needs to be a choice. In the Old Testament, the believer chose to bring a sacrifice to God as he instructed because those sacrifices pictured the once and for all sacrifice. Under the New Deal, under the New Testament, we choose to be that living sacrifice because of a completed work. So I want you to notice here in verse 1 that this is a voluntary presentation. It's a very personal decision you make. No one can make you. You are to present yourself. And we saw that it's as a living sacrifice. It was very popular in the 70s and 80s to take Romans 12.1 and to build a theology that was just not accurate. To say that first you receive Jesus as your Savior, and then at some point later on you presented yourself to God and you made him your Lord. And so it it was popular amongst pastors. There's a whole movement of them, at least here in the United States, who said, you've received Jesus as your Savior. Have you made him your Lord? As if there was this crisis decision that followed salvation. And they built it on the heiress tents. And if you were here last time, I went through a number of illustrations showing that that's a total misuse of the heiress tents in the Greek New Testament. Underscore, you don't have to know Greek to figure this out. This is a living sacrifice. This is not just one presentation you make. This is a daily, ongoing, living sacrifice. And he refers to it as your spiritual service of worship. That word spiritual is the Greek word logikos. We get our word logic from it. So if you have the NASB, you can read in the margin your rational service. You could put it as your intelligent service. Some translations say as your reasonable service. This is the most reasonable, the most logical, the most intelligent thing to do to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice because of what he's done for you. So Paul is saying, look, in light of what God has done, in light of what God is doing, in light of what God will do for you, he's explained that also up to this point in Romans. The most wonderful thing you could do To honor the Lord is to present yourself each day to him as a living and holy sacrifice. He's saying, think about this. Use your heads to put it in crass terms. In light of God's glory and splendor and grace and mercy, the wisest thing you can do is to give yourself to him. And not to is sheer lunacy. It's really unbelief. It's to say that what God has for me is not the very best. Now, Again, this is just a brief summary, but if you've been saved, 
Everything you have has come from God. And, and don't leave here thinking for a moment that you can serve your way to heaven because you cannot. And if you're trying to work your way to heaven, you won't go there. The Bible is clear. Gifts are not earned. Gifts are humbly received. But if God has saved you, if he has justified you, if you've made peace with God in light of that, you are to give him everything. So there is this uh, presentation that we make. And it's a presentation that we make each and every day. And if you're not making that presentation in an ongoing way, you're never going to grow, you'll never mature, and that spiritual gift will not manifest itself. Secondly, we saw that finding your spiritual gift demands a transformation. It involves a transformation. Let's keep reading. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Phillips translation says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds. And we saw that the Greek word for transformation is metamorphal, and we get our word metamorphosis from it, you know, a metamorphosis that a butterfly goes through to become what it is. And so it's a word that means to change from one form into another. And so he's saying you need to be metamorphosized. And again, these are imperatives in the Greek New Testament, which is obvious from English. You could almost put an exclamation mark behind each of these commands. Don't do this, but do this. Don't think this way, but think this way. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. How? Through the renewing of your mind. Now, notice he doesn't tell us in this verse how to renew our minds, but he does throughout his epistles and even in Romans. You renew your mind through the Word of God. You begin to delete the old files that are in your thought life, the way you used to think about God, about yourself, about others, and God reprograms you, and the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to sanctify you. Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer, sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. Now, I want to say if you're holding back and you've reached some area of your life where you say, I don't want to obey in this area, I don't want to be a living sacrifice, then that transformation process stops. You could hear thousands of sermons, go to Bible studies, but your life at that point will really not change because the illuminating, teaching, guiding, comforting work of the Spirit of God takes place in the context of someone who is obedient. So if you're ever going to discover your spiritual gift, you have to grow. And as you grow, it begins to show itself. But that growth, critical to it, is a presentation, a transformation. But third, we saw finding your spiritual gift comes with a realization. It comes with a realization. Let me read all of verse 3 now, uh, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove. There it is. That's the realization so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The word prove is the word dakimazo. It means to accept as approved after testing. It was used of uh, a metal that had to be approved for its purity. When you put the alpha prefix on it, adakimazo, interestingly, the word is found in Romans 1, where it is translated a depraved or a reprobate mind, a mind that God doesn't approve because people who have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, but an approved mind, 
a, a, a person who is growing in Christ because of a presentation, a renewing that brings about a transformation, comes to experience by testing, by reality, that God's will is good, it's pure, it's acceptable, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. You can't improve upon it. But again, there has to be this ongoing presentation. Now, again, the topic this morning is using your spiritual gift. And there is an assumption in the New Testament that you can use your spiritual gift because you know what your spiritual gift is. So, for instance, Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.10, one of the central passages on the subject of spiritual gifts, as each one has received a special gift, employ it, use it, in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Implied in the command is you know what your gift is such that you can employ it in the body of Christ. So every believer who wants to be a faithful steward initially asks, well, what is my spiritual gift? And then once they discover that spiritual gift, how am I going to plug into the local assembly where I can use it? Now, that's a 10-minute summary of an hour sermon. So if you missed it, it's online. You might want to go back and dig into the details. But what I find very interesting as you read this passage of Scripture in other letters where the subject of spiritual gifts is addressed, the uh, format is always the same. First, there's a call to walk with God, and then he goes to the subject of spiritual gifts. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, and remember, if you want to remember where these passages are, there's two twelves and two fours. Romans 12, that's the text we're using as our launching pad. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, actually 12, 13, and 14. 1 Peter 4 and Ephesians 4. So two twelves, two fours. So while the subject of spiritual gifts is sprinkled all the way through the New Testament letters, it is especially highlighted in those four central passages. So, for instance, in Ephesians 4, in the latter half, he deals with the subject of spiritual gifts. But before he goes there, he starts with the same kind of exhortation that Paul does in Romans 12. Ephesians 4, verse 1, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he goes on and he expresses very practically how you express that unity and that walk with God, and then he delves into spiritual gifts. Same truth in 1 Peter, same truth in 1 Corinthians. Ever before Paul addresses the subject of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, there are numerous exhortations as to how we should live. For instance, in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price, and therefore, he says, you are to glorify God in your body. So in like fashion, here in Romans 12, he begins with an exhortation to be a living sacrifice. And it's unfortunate that Romans 12, 1 and 2 is often divorced from the subject of spiritual gifts, but that's the context in which it is given. Now, if you've been a Christian for years and years and you don't even know there's a spiritual gift that God gave you or you don't know what yours is, typically it means you just haven't grown much. And that should not be the case. If Billy Graham was correct years ago, 
He said 90 to 95% of those in the American church have stayed baby Christians. They've never grown. Now, I don't know if it's that high. I'm not sure how he came up with that percentage, but I'll tell you it's high. Because I meet Christians often, some who come here who have been in churches for decades sometimes, and you begin to talk to them, and you find out, oh, they're saved. They sure haven't grown much. And so they don't know what their spiritual gift is. And let me just say, if you're a brand new Christian, look, I, I was 18 when I became a Christian. I was 19 when I attended a seminar on what their spiritual gifts were. And I began to find out what spiritual gifts were. I didn't even know there were spiritual gifts. And so there's a certain education process, but you have to grow a certain amount, just like a baby has to grow to begin to manifest their talents. But it's almost like a formula, a presentation plus a transformation results in a realization. And so if you want to realize, if you want to prove, if you want to know, if you want to experience God's perfect will for your life, especially as it relates to the subject of spiritual gifts, then there's this ongoing presentation as a living sacrifice. There has to be a transformation. Is it any wonder the Word of God has been taken out of the pulpits in America? We're wondering why America is going down the tubes. I want to tell you, it's not a political problem. It's a spiritual problem. The church is no longer a bright light. The church has lost its saltiness, and the culture is rotting. And part of that is due to the fact that expository teaching, verse by verse, has been removed from the pulpits in America. People contact me from different states almost weekly saying, can you help me find a church? I've gone to every church in the town. I'm just looking for a pastor who will teach the Bible like you do. Can you help me with a church? And I will do everything I can. Pastor Ed often helps me in the process. But sadly, in a lot of communities, even big cities, you can't find a church that just teaches the Word. America is going down the moral tubes. And if we think if we just get the right person in office, that person might stay the problem for a while. We should vote intelligently. I could never vote for a party that in their platform wants to write up before the hour the baby is born if the mother chooses to take that innocent life. I could never, ever vote for any politician, Republican or Democrat, where they believe in sanctioning the murder of little babies. Add to that, we've got these young Americans who fit into the college age, and they think socialism is a great alternative. See, that's how far they, away they are from truth. And some of them are even Christians, and they don't realize that according to the Bible, socialism is a sin. But they're so ignorant of biblical truth. They think, well, this is a good thing. It's not a good thing. So there's earnest consecration, and only that will result in a church that grows spiritually where they are really salt and light and impact the culture around us. Secondly, if you are ever going to discover and use your spiritual gift, not only must there be earnest consecration, there must be thoughtful evaluation. Thoughtful evaluation. Look now, if you will, at verse 3. 
For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have a sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now, first notice what he does not say. He does not say, for through the grace given to the elders and the deacons and the missionaries and the evangelists and the paid staff. No, that's not what he says. He says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone. He's writing to every believer. You may be 12 years old and you are born again. He's writing to you. You may be a teenager and you've met Christ, he is writing to you. You may be an adult and you've been regenerated from above, he is writing to you. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, he's speaking to each and every person who has experienced the grace of God and so they've been born from above. He is saying, what I am about to tell you is done on the basis of God's grace. And of course, to appreciate what Paul says, you have to know something about Paul. Every once in a while, someone comes up to me and they say, you know, I've heard you mention this guy, the Apostle Paul, a lot. Who is he? And I don't, you know, dismiss that, but that's the generation that we live in. They don't know. When I was in the city of Rome and I wanted to go to the place where Paul was imprisoned and it was a class A spot, and I was asking the hotel clerk, he said, who's the Apostle Paul? I asked someone else, who's the Apostle Paul? I asked four people. Nobody knew who the Apostle Paul is. One guy said, well, I know about Peter. There's this big church after him. They didn't know who Paul was. Of course, only 3% of all the people in Italy even attend church. So here's Paul, who was once a big man. He was a mega Pharisee. Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. We don't know if he was a member of the Sanhedrin on the night that that group, the Supreme Court of Israel, so to speak, chose to have Jesus crucified. But by the time he writes his letters, he is a big shot of sorts. And yet, because of God's grace, this one who is a persecutor or a hater of the church, a violent aggressor, he continually and habitually opens his letters, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. The big shot became a slave, and one of the most common terms used in the New Testament to describe the believer is that we are slaves of Christ. Now, notice here in verse uh, 3, four times he repeats the word, think. I say to you, I say to everyone among you not to think, that's number one, not to think more highly of himself than he ought, but to think, that's number two, but to think, number three, so as to have sound thinking or sober thinking. The NASB puts it sound judgment, but it's the same root word think as I'll show you in a moment. Four different times, God tells us he wants us to think. I think God wants us to think because he wants us to think right and not wrongly. And that's what he is underscoring here. And so to begin to evaluate what your possible spiritual gift might be and how to use it, you need to think biblically. And the tendency sometimes is to think wrongly in one of two extremes. Some think with sinful exaggeration. That's point A in your outline if you're taking notes. If you're online, there's a bulletin online you can print out. You should not think with sinful exaggeration. Now, this happens when you forget the source of your spiritual gift, when your arm gets out of joint for habitually patting yourself on the back. Look, if God has given you the ability to preach or teach, it's by His grace. If God has given you the ability to lead, it's by His grace. If God has given you the spiritual gift of administration, 
It's by his grace. It's God has given you the gift to show mercy or to serve. It is all by his grace. Any spiritual gift that you have is an expression of God's grace, just like any acquired skill that you have or natural talent that you have. God wrote that at physical birth in your DNA, just as on your spiritual birthday, he gifted you. So Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Forty years ago, I came across a little poem that I saved as a reminder for us never to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Listen to these words. Sometimes when you're feeling important, Sometimes when your ego is up, sometimes when you take it for granted that you are the prize-winning pup, sometimes when you think that your going would leave an unfillable hole, just follow these simple instructions and see how it humbles your soul. Take a bucket and fill it with water, put your hand in it up to the wrist, pull it out, and the hole that's remaining is a measure of how much you'll be missed. You can splash all you wish when you enter. You may stir up the water galore, but stop and you'll find that in no time, it's right back where it was before. Paul wants you to know, he wants me to know, he wants everyone to know, there are no indispensable people in the body of Christ. I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. There is only one indispensable person. And that's the head, the Lord Jesus. And some Christians, unfortunately, have an exaggerated view of themselves in terms of their spiritual gifts. Sometimes they think they possess gifts that they do not have. And there can be real damage done in the body of Christ when someone overrates himself and serves in a capacity that they should not serve in. And so we're warned not to think more highly of ourselves. There are no big shots in the body of Christ, the big shot mentality, superstar Christendom that we've been painting for the last three decades comes from the world's way of thinking that is energized by the devil, but not from Holy Scripture. Ever before Paul delves into the subject of spiritual gifts and their use, he wants us with sensitivity and humility to properly look at ourselves. Peter, by the way, does the same thing. In 1 Peter 5, in verse 5, he says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, talking about leaders in the church. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So it's not surprising, likewise, when Paul begins this discussion on the subject of spiritual gifts, he wants us to have a mindset of humility, before there can be true, genuine, Christ-honoring service, it must be done out of a recognition that I am what I am by the grace of God. You have to have a proper opinion of yourself. And Christians who imagine that they are superior will be snobbish, they will be prideful. And so Paul begins with a warning here in verse 3, not to think more highly of yourself, not to have an attitude of superiority. Now, the very first time the word think appears in the text, it's accompanied by a prefix, hooper. We get our word hyper from it. Don't hyperthink. And so the NASB uh, paraphrases it a little bit and says, not to think more highly of yourself. You could literally say, don't hyperthink of yourself. 
Don't be so excited about yourself. Don't get all hyper over who you are. Just settle down. Now, of course, the opposite is true. The opposite of thinking too highly of yourself is to think too lowly of yourself. So we should not think too highly, but neither should we think with false humiliation. Point B on your outline, you're not to think with false humiliation. We're not to think too highly, but neither are we to think too lowly. And the sin of self-depreciation is an attitude when you don't recognize what God has done for you and the fact that he did it for you. Some, um, in their false humiliation, in pride, think there are nobody. And so, and some in their false humiliation think there are somebody. Like, you don't know who you're talking to. You don't know who I am. And I've met some Christian leaders like that. But sometimes, in pride, people denigrate themselves. And it's a false humility. And so someone comes up to you and you say, brother, sister, you just really blessed me today. The way you served my child, I was just so honored. And thank you for letting God, thank you for, for letting God use you. And you say, well, it wasn't me, it was God. No, it was you. God threw you. God gifted you. God worked through you. So don't depreciate that God has made you for a place of service in the body of Christ. Don't say you're a nothing, you're a nobody, that I'm just pathetic and you run around with your head down and your shoulders slump like you don't matter and that, that nobody knows you. Look, there will be some of the greatest people in the kingdom of God, names that people never, ever heard. People who work behind the scenes, who faithfully, faithfully served. One of our missionary friends just went home to be with the Lord, and I think of them when I was a brand-new Christian and 21 years old, and as a couple, they encouraged me, and she just died last week, and her husband a short time ago. 50 years of faithful service. You never heard their name before unless you just saw it on our missionary list. But for 50 years, they served Jesus Christ faithfully. So don't say I'm worthless because I'm insignificant. That's taking the world's view of leadership. We think in the world of the guy who's up front, who's very visible, who can sing or play an instrument or preach or act like an evangelist. He really matters, but I don't matter at all. That's unbelief. And that's contradicting what God says about you in this verse. God, notice, God has allotted to each a measure of faith. God has allotted, or you could translate it more literally, God has dealt out. He is the great giver of gifts, and to each, the King James says, to every man, to each of us, God has given a gift. And God needs a full deck. And in a fellowship, there will be a full deck of gifts that God wants to express. And because every believer has been gifted, you don't have to seek for some gift. In some churches, they ask you to seek for a particular gift. You don't find that in the New Testament. It would be foolish for you to seek to acquire some gift when God says he's already given you a gift. God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And he's not speaking here, of course, of saving faith, but in the context of 
a spiritual gift. He expects you to be faithful, as he'll describe in verse 6, based on the proportion of the faith that he has given you. He's talking about faithful stewardship. Now, just know God's made an investment in you. And someday, as stewards, each one of us will give an account at the judgment of the just. And one of the things that God will evaluate when we stand before him in heaven is how we used our spiritual gift. So God placed you where he wanted you to be. You don't have any say in it. I don't have any say in it. Four times in the New Testament, we are told as God sovereignly wills, he gives spiritual gifts. And so there's no place for pride in the kingdom of God. God is crystal clear in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7 that no one has anything but they did what they did not first receive. God has allotted, God has dealt out to each one a spiritual gift, a measure by which you can serve him and his people. So one, you don't want to think with sinful exaggeration. Neither do you want to think with false humiliation. You want to think with a sober realization. So we're not to run around thinking, I'm good at everything. Neither are we to run around saying, I'm not good at anything. God wants you to think with a sober realization. Look again at verse 3. Think so as to have sound judgment. Paul is saying that the solution to the first two extremes is to think rightly about ourselves, to think so as to have sound judgment. By the way, that word sound judgment is a compound word. And as we'll see in a moment, it contains the same word think that is repeated four times in this verse. He is saying, in essence, think about yourself in such a way that you will have sound thinking. And so the word to think soundly is basically saying there's some boundaries, there's some parameters that God has made for us by which we need to think within. It's balanced thinking. To think soberly, as the King James renders the Greek New Testament, is to first recognize that everything I have is by God's grace. Again, that's how the verse began. For through the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you. In other words, Paul is saying as a spokesman for all of us that we are what we are by the grace of God. And he habitually reminds his people of that that he writes to in the different letters. Put out in the margin, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 14. He writes to Timothy, who is his protege in the faith. And he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. How? By grace? How so? Well, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. So one, to think soberly is to think within the boundaries of Scripture, to think that within the realm of grace, that everything you are is by grace. But not only do we have what we have by grace, everything we do, if we do it well, is by grace. If you go and serve in the nursery for an hour because you have the gift of helps, you've done it well if you did it by grace. 
if you went there in dependency on the Lord, if you teach an Awana class and you do it well, you did it well because you did it by grace. If you're serving as a parking lot attendant on Sunday morning, you did it well because you did it by grace. Because as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How did you receive Him? By grace through faith. How do you walk in Him? By grace through faith in total dependence upon Him. And so once again, Paul reminds us that what we have is by grace, and as we serve the Lord, what we do is by grace. Think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Would you note that Paul does not say God has allotted to each a skill, or a particular physical physique, or a certain uh, personal charisma? No, he says God has measured out to each of us faith. God wants us to know that he doled out the correct amount in expression of faith. And so if God made you with the gift of helps or administration or mercy, maybe some gift that even functions behind the scenes that you never see, it's as he chose, and it's according to his purposes and his will. So God gave to each of us, meaning every believer, the necessary commitment, equipment that you need to serve him and to serve his people. So when you find out what your gift is, use it. Let's keep reading chapter 12 and verse 3, and I want you to see again the repetition of the word think. Now, that red doesn't show up real well, but there's a word that repeats itself, phroneo, but even if you don't know Greek, you can say, oh yeah, in each of those instances, I can see the same word that is used here. So let's read it. For, though, for through the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think. That's hooper for now. Not to hyperthink. And so we render it here in the NASB, not to think more highly. Not to hyperthink of yourself, or we render it not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. There's the word again. But to think, there's the word again, for now. So as to have sound judgment. And there it's the word so, for now. Sound thinking, you could put it. So as to have sound thinking as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So when you think about spiritual gifts, the first thing you want to do is maybe educate yourself. And if this subject is new to you, you want to find out what God says about spiritual gifts. And by the way, if you're raising children in your home, and they've been regenerated by the Spirit. You want to ask them if they know what their spiritual gift is. Now, maybe if they're, you know, six or seven, uh, you know, you're dealing with other issues in terms of conversion first. But look, I remember one of my sons at the age of eight, he knew precisely what his spiritual gift is, and he still uses it in that capacity to this day. So you want to help your children to find out what their spiritual gift is. And again, just, just as, uh, you know, you see them in the natural, physical realm excel in certain areas and you affirm them and say, you know, God has given you just an incredible artistic ability. One of my granddaughters, eight years old, I can't believe the artwork that she can create. It's just incredible to me. I mean, I, I cannot at 63 even begin to draw like that. But at eight years old, I mean, she's drawing like somebody who's 20. That's from God. And so you affirm them for that. Likewise, in the spiritual realm, when you begin to see a certain aspect of spiritual growth, you affirm your children. You affirm one another within the body of Christ. And so when you educate yourself, 
Read through those four central passages. Take the course that's available online that I've taught on the subject of spiritual gifts. It's 125 pages long, so it's not for the faint of heart, but you'll learn virtually everything the New Testament says and does not say about the subject of spiritual gifts. Take the spiritual gifts test if you haven't done it, and that would be extremely helpful between now and especially next Sunday's sermon. And even if you say, well, I already know what my spiritual gift is, take it anyway because we're going to evaluate some areas that aren't your spiritual gift next week that will be important. And if you're still trying to find out your spiritual gift and uh, get someone to take it for you who knows you well and answer the questions, not as you wish they were, that's the way the world thinks, but as it's true of you, answer them accordingly as it is true. And so first, there's earnest consecration. Secondly, there must be thoughtful evaluation. Third, there must be faithful cooperation. There must be faithful cooperation. There is more that the Apostle Paul wants us to understand, and so in the next few verses, he gives us three truths for helping us to understand God's design for the local church. First, he wants us to understand the illustration of the human body is a picture of unity. The illustration of the human body is a picture of unity. Let's look at verse 4. For just as we have many members, circle that word many. For just as we have many members in one body, circle the word one. The many-one relationship in the realm of spiritual gifts is repeatedly used by Paul. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. So here in verses 4 and 5, Paul draws a comparison between the human body and the body of Christ. A healthy human body is wonderfully coordinated. Each part of the body functions in relation to the other parts of the body. That's how God designs it. Designed it. There's no rivalry between my eyes and my ears and my nose and my hands. They all function together corporately. Yet, you cannot function well as a body if you don't have all the parts. So there is one body, but it has many members. And at the top of this physical body I have, it's called a head. And at the top of the spiritual body, we have a head, and his name is the Lord Jesus. Now, you might want to put out on the margin next to verse 4, 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 17. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 17. Um, if you're new to the Bible, it's just the next book over. I think it might be helpful to turn there for a moment. It's just a few pages over. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's read a few verses. You might want to make some notes out in the margin when we turn there. If you've read the letter to the Corinthians, you know that they had real problems in the exercise of their spiritual gifts. The hinge chapter in 1 Corinthians is chapter 7, verse 1, where Paul opens that chapter by saying, now concerning the things about which you wrote me. And so starting in chapter 7, all the way through the end of the book, he begins to tick off the questions that they wrote him about. And one of the questions, in one of his concerns, it was in reference to spiritual gifts. They were not functioning as a team. They were promoting some gifts to the exclusion of others. And when the church came together corporately, they were exercising the wrong gifts in the corporate service. Now, if you know this book, in the introduction to the letter in 1 Corinthians 1, I think it's verse 7, he says that they had all of the gifts, all of the spiritual gifts were represented in the Corinthian church, all 20 of them. 
The problem was not that they were lacking in spiritual gifts. The problem is that they were lacking in the proper exercise of those spiritual gifts, and they were not using them in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so by exercising them in the energy of the flesh, they were abusing spiritual gifts. Now, I hope you found it. 1 Corinthians 12, look at verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. There it is again, the one-many relationship. That's what we just read. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. Now, notice verses 15 through 17. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? Can you imagine if I were up here preaching and I was just one big eyeball? I mean, I couldn't say anything. I couldn't hear anything. Just one big eyeball. If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? I could hear you, but I couldn't smell you. Not that I'd want to, but, but now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. Verse 19, if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. So just as the human body has multiple members, so does the body of Christ. If a body had only a head or only an eye or only a hand, Paul's point is it would be basically a monster. And some churches are spiritual monsters. Some members are spiritual monsters who try to do everything when they're really not functioning in the one, possibly two things that God has called them to do. Suppose a professional football team functioned that way, where just every member in the team did his own thing. It would be a disaster. They would never have a winning season. I've only been to one professional football game in my life. We were living in Dallas, Texas. And uh, a very wealthy man in the church gave me three tickets, and I took my sons, Jeremy and Jordan at the time, and, and uh, VIP parking, it was sweet. Uh, now, the pastors in Dallas would hate the fact that whenever they played in Dallas, the game always started at noon, right in the middle of a church service. Well, we weren't about to skip out on church, so when church was over, we drove down to Dallas, and I'll tell you, our second car was a real clunker. I bought it for $400. My father-in-law used to call it a beater box. I mean, it just it dents in it, and I put 30,000 miles on it while I was in seminary, and I sold it five years later for $575 and made a profit on it. Did very, very little to it. So I come into the VIP lot with this old clunker, and I mean, there's Cadillacs and Mercedes and even some Rolls Royces. I mean, these are like the wealthy of Dallas, all the oil people. And God kind of looks at me, and I said, I've got my VIP ticket. And of course, what amazed me is I sat there amongst 65,000 fans is there seemed to be 65,000 coaches. And when you're sitting on the bleaches and you're warming the bench and you're drinking your drink or eating your popcorn, it's really easy to be critical. You know, he should have held on to the ball or he should have done it this way and on and on they all went. But you get out on the playing field and you start taking some hits and you start thinking differently. The same is true in the church. It's easy to pastor the church when you're not pastoring. It's easy to preach and parse the words of the preacher when you're not the one preaching. 
It's easy to coordinate the choir when you're not singing in the choir. It's easy to instruct the ushers when you're not the one ushering. It's easy to talk about how essential it is to be hospitable and friendly when you're not hospitable and friendly. It's easy to talk about some program that you had in your last church that our church needs when you're not willing to work in the program. It's very easy to direct from the sidelines. But when you get into the game and you get some dirt under your fingernails and you get some sweat on your brow, you really begin to think differently. And so, you see, God wants us to function as a team. The team concept is being undergirded here in Romans 12 and verse 4. Turn back. Just as we have many members in one body, all the members do not have the same function. So his first point is that the illustration of the human body is a picture of unity, but he carries it further. The illustration of Christ's body is a picture of family. It's a picture of family. So Paul now applies this truth to each of us here in verse 5. Notice, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now that's a powerful statement. He says we are individually members one of another. It's one thing for me to say, I belong to Christ. It's another thing for me to say, I belong to you. It's one thing from this verse for me to say, I'm related to God by faith in Christ. It's another thing for me to say, I'm related to you. But that's precisely what the Apostle Paul means. Now, the average Christian, you ask them to give you a list of their priorities, and they will typically say, God, family, career. And they'll look at you maybe even with a sense of pride that they got it right. Yet when they say family, typically all they mean is their biological family. So where does my spiritual family fit in on the list? Well, if you read Paul's letters throughout the New Testament, take Ephesians, for instance, one of the books where he deals with this subject on spiritual gifts. He says a lot about the nuclear family and the responsibility and its priority, how the husband and the wife are to love each other in such a way that when someone looks at that home, they can say, my, that's the kind of love that Christ has for his people. He speaks about children who are to honor their parents. He speaks about parents who are to bring their children up on the discipline and nurture of the Lord. But in Ephesians 4, like in Romans 12, Paul also speaks about the relationship and the priority of the spiritual family. And by the time you come to the last paragraph here in chapter 12, he tells us a lot about serving one another, about building up one another, about there being unity amongst one another, and he's talking about our spiritual family. So biblically, when you think of family, you should think not just of your biological family, you need to think of your spiritual family. And by the way, has it ever occurred to you that your spiritual family will long outlive your biological family? In fact, when you leave planet Earth, either by death or by rapture, your spiritual husband becomes the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God is our bridegroom, and he has already gone to prepare a place for us in the Father's house. Sisters, that means when you leave this world, your husband here on earth will not be your husband for all of eternity. You say, thank God for that. <laughs> so since we are members one of another, since we are related by faith to the bridegroom Christ, 
We're to serve one another. And I want to tell you, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot have a healthy biological family if you as a born-again believer is not rightly related to a spiritual family. For instance, listen to what Paul says when he gives advice to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. He's describing this family in family terms, this church in family terms. Do not, he says, sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. So today, Christians talk about finding a church family. Why? Because God has made us members one of another. And so the illustration of the human body is a picture of unity. The illustration of Christ's body is a picture of family. But notice, too, both of these illustrations are a picture of mutual service. So we who are many in the body of Christ are still members one of another, And so we need each other. We depend on each other. God has given you a spiritual gift that needs to function in the confines of a local church because your gift cannot function outside of the confines of a local assembly. There needs to be in every church people who come together who serve one another. And in every local church, God gives a representative number of spiritual gifts in which to take care of each other. Paul said this in Ephesians 4, speaking of our dependence upon each other. We are to grow up into all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. Now listen, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You read a verse like this, and it's clear there are no insignificant gifts, meaning there are no insignificant people in the body of Christ. Every joint, or every person you could say, plays an individual part as the Holy Spirit works through them together with all these other people for what function? For the building up of itself, for the growth of the body in love. So don't depreciate who you are, because you are an important person if you know Christ is your Savior, and you need to find a sense of satisfaction with how God has made you. And for some people, it becomes liberating when they realize, I don't need to think about the world, that just the way God made me, the way God gifted me to serve His people is absolutely perfect, that God says that I have an important place in which to 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 play and to serve Him. So God is not here to serve your ego. We are to serve Him as we serve each other. So how do you discover your spiritual gift? And how do you find the specific place in which it functions? We'll touch on it this week. We'll come back to it in more depth the next week. But let me just ask you a question. Does my hand bother you this morning? You say, no, your hand doesn't bother me. It looks just fine to me. What if I cut my hand off and it was down there on the floor? You came in and said, hey, there's a hand on the floor. Call the police. There's a hand on the floor. It would just kind of gross you out. See, it would just be awful, a hand laying on the floor if you came into the auditorium. But when it's connected to my body, it doesn't bother you at all. Well, some of us are like the hand on the floor. 
We're disconnected to the body of Christ. And so the concept of membership, of being associated with a local fellowship, is taught in many passages that deal with the subject of spiritual gifts. You know, I meet these Christians. I say, well, where do you go to church? Well, we, we go in my home. Oh, you're planning a church in your home? No, me and my family, we go to church there. What do you mean? Well, you know, I'm the pastor and my, my kids, we're the congregation. We do church there. That's not a church. One person recently told me, well, I don't forsake the assembling together of the brethren. I go to a Bible study. You're forsaking the assembling together of the brethren. That command is in the context of a local assembly. He's going to say in the next breath, submit to your leaders, obey them who give watch over your soul. Not to mention if it's just you and mom and some children. The gifts of the Spirit are not represented amongst a handful of people. And what makes a church a church? It's organized with elders, with deacons. They practice the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and they're, they're structured for missions both locally and around the world. There, there are certain aspects that are unfolded in the New Testament that make a church a church. So it's not by accident that God has called us to be a part of the church. And when you become a member of the church, there will be mature leadership within the church who might be able to help you to recognize and identify your giftedness. It's not by accident that the church at Antioch were able to recognize the giftedness of Paul and Barnabas such that they underwrote their ministry as they launched that first missionary journey. Listen, it's not by accident that the church in Jerusalem were able to see six men full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom who had gifts in the area of serving, who served the church there. It was not by accident that Silas and James were, or Judas and Silas were, 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 were chosen there at the Jerusalem Council to speak on behalf of everyone because they had speaking gifts. It was obvious to people. And if the spiritually mature leadership in your church recognizes that you have a spiritual gift in a certain area, it will be obvious to them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that the spiritual man, not just speaking of a spirit-filled man there, though that's part of it, but he's speaking of a spiritually mature man, that those who are spiritual are able to discern spiritual truth. And if you feel like you have a particular gift and no one else sees that gift, then maybe you need to step back and reevaluate. Someone says, well, I have the gift of preaching, but no one else has the gift of listening. Maybe you've called it wrong. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Since one of the functions of the spiritual gifts is to bless people and to bring strength to the body, it will not only be obvious to you, but it will be obvious to other people. Now, again, we're going to explore this more, but let me bring this in for landing and share a couple of applications as we close. Number one, membership in the church should not erase the diversity of the church. Membership in the church should not erase the diversity of the church. There's one body of Christ, but there are many members. And just as all the members in your human body don't have the same function, neither does the body of Christ. We'll come to verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. In other words, we have gifts that differ. Why? Because God didn't make us all the same. And the thought of diversity is very difficult sometimes for many of God's people to appreciate because they think the way the world thinks. 
we tend to avoid people maybe that are not like us. We naturally hang around people who like the same things that we like, who have the same interests that we have, who are in the same station of life that we're in, maybe who come to the same conclusion. They like the same sports team we like. They vote the same way we vote. And so we think this way in the world, and then we bring it into the church on Sunday, and we carry it over into our thinking. And that's why many churches, everybody looks alike, they dress alike, they talk alike, they read the same books, they watch the same programs, they listen to the same kind of music, they go to the same places. And in some local churches, because they do not understand the principle of diversity, they divide over non-essential issues. And the average church person today thinks, well, if everyone is alike, we must have unity. And that's not necessarily true. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a vast difference between unity and uniformity. Because, you see, uniformity forbids diversity. But as you read the New Testament church, as I just recently preached from Acts, it is a very diverse church. And that's true here in this subject of spiritual gifts. Now, I'm not talking about doctrinal issue or, or moral issues. We have churches in town and all across America who have compromised themselves on basic theological truth and basic moral truth. We're not talking about that. All we're talking about is that God has made us different so that we can be one. God created them male and female so that they might be one. It wasn't Adam and Steve. It wasn't Ethel and Eve. It was Adam and Eve that a man should leave his father and mother and the two should become one. And so it is in the body of Christ. It's our diversity that God created that actually is used to enhance true, genuine, biblical unity. So first I learned that membership in the church should not erase diversity. Secondly, gathering with the church is no substitute for serving in the church. Gathering with the church is no substitute for serving in the body of Christ. Now, finding your place and your fit in service is important. And sometimes it's easy to find that location, but it can be hard work. Sometimes when you serve in the area of giftedness, and we'll see next time that the word grace, these are grace gifts, is also connected to a similar Greek word almost spelled identically that give us the word joy. So when you're serving in your area of giftedness, not only is there a sense of blessing towards those whom you serve, there's a deep sense of satisfaction and joy in your own heart. But understand while your spiritual gift may bring you inspiration, it may also bring you perspiration. Serving faithfully is hard work. It can be costly. It can be sacrificial. It can be a denial of self. My wife, when she was serving in the nursery one Sunday, this new couple came, and it was their first time, and her sense was is that they were apprehensive and probably didn't know Christ. And that baby within five minutes was Mr. Fussed. And she walked that baby nurtured that baby, was animated for that baby, and she had to do it for an hour to keep that baby happy, but she did it. Why? Because she wanted 
that couple to hear the Word of God. Look, sometimes it is just hard work. I mean, if you really take seriously preparing your Awana class, you're going to teach the kids for 15 minutes some truth of Scripture. It's hard work if you do it well. It's hard work to be here on time and to usher. I mean, on and on and on we could go. Now, I know we are in a COVID range, and a lot of the expressions of your service is not there right now, but this is a good time to evaluate, and we'll talk a little bit about this next time, about the common responsibilities we have. Because sometimes people say, well, you know, I'm an usher, and I've been an usher for 10 years, and that's what I do when I come to CBC, and that's important, and that's a fantastic thing, because you set the tone, especially for some first-time person, or some visitor uh, who's apprehensive, or some believer who just needs a warm smile of encouragement. Well, I can't do that right now, so I guess I can't serve God. Well, we'll look at the 16 common responsibilities we have. And God may be giving us this pause. You say, well, we should be meeting in full. God may lead some pastors to do that. He hasn't led us to do that yet. And I hope you will respect that and honor the elders. Believe me, I can't wait till we're running 1,000 miles an hour again. And in God's perfect time, we will. But there's common responsibilities. And there's not only service when the church is gathered, there's service when the church is scattered. What about the common responsibility to bring people to the Savior? That's a responsibility we have. Whoever wishes to be great among you, Jesus said, shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. We uh, sometimes choose churches. I want to come to this church. You know, good social interaction here. I like the programs. I like the activities for my kids. They follow some of the traditions I'm comfortable with. And we're consumer-driven. Why? Because that's what we've been trained in the last 30 years as pastors to do. We drive the church for the consumer. So these two leading pastors went door to door. What do you want in a church? And we asked the world what they wanted, not what God wanted. And it produced huge numbers, and so pastors across America replicated the pattern. But it's created a disaster in the body of Christ. And we wonder why so many are apostatizing and falling from the faith. Why? Because they lack discernment, and people are walking into pulpits, people are walking into seminaries, people are walking into Christian universities who are lost in taking leadership. There are tears, and nobody can see it. The devil has won a victory. So we arrive with our mental checklist. Good parking, check. Friendly ushers, I like that. Plenty of back row seats. Man, that's my kind of church. Youth ministry, they've got it for my kids. They're going to do what I'm supposed to do. Climate control, comfortable, great message. And we're consumers and not slaves. Now listen. If you've never met Jesus Christ, you're on the outside. And God wants you to be on the inside. I want you to be on the inside. But you have to decide about Jesus. 
It's not like the liberal preacher who says, well, you know, God's at the top of the mountain and there's trails all the way around the mountain. Take whatever trail you want. No, there's only one path. There is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But you see, we live in a pluralistic society. We live in a culture where kids have been trained. The average college student believes there's no absolutes. I wrote a book on post, uh, not a book, but a chapter in the Answers for Genesis apologetic series. And one of the chapters I wrote for Ken Ham was postmodernism. And postmodernism, take all the air out of the balloon. There's no absolutes. Just believe whatever you want. Your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. No absolutes. There are absolutes, and someday every person is going to find how absolute Jesus is. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Eternity is real. And if you die without Christ or he comes back, my friend, you will know it. And God does not want you to go to that place the Scripture calls hell. Call upon Jesus today. But if you know Jesus, you need a local church. And I don't care where you are in the country listening or even in another country of the world. You need to find a local Bible-believing church where you can dig in and serve the people of God. Now, our Father, we thank you today for your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that you didn't leave us without direction. So we pray for this assembly. People are at different places. Some are just new Christians, haven't been saved that long, and this is brand new to them, and help us to encourage each other, Help them to realize what a valuable member they are of this assembly and help them to grow. And even those who maybe have been Christians for years and they're still unsure of how you've gifted them with a grace gift, help them to discover that, that they might lock in, especially in some area of service within this church body. Thank you that each and every individual part, every joint plays a vital role for the building up of the body in love. So help us to excel even more as your people that Jesus, our Savior, above all, might be glorified. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing this great hymn as a prayer, but also as an opportunity for invitation. We may be out in the children's building and you want to come, here's your opportunity to come and join. You may be in this auditorium and you're not a member of a church, but you need a church. We need you. If you haven't confessed Jesus openly as Lord and been baptized, that's a prerequisite to becoming a member of this church. Joining this church will never save you or anyone else. Only Christ saves. But if you are saved, the Bible says you'll be unashamed and you'll be willing to be baptized as an emblem of your faith. And so if you've already done that, you come too. Your coming will say, I want to function within a body of believers just as God designed for me. Matt, lead us. We'll sing all the verses. If you're going to come, step out now.